Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Today's lesson is part of a message that was preached at the Midwinter Retreat at Berean Bible Church in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. All of the conference messages had to do with the biblical teachings about the body of Christ. If you would like to hear other messages from the conference, including other speakers, you can visit the Berean Bible Church website at www.bereanbiblechurch.com. Here he calls, he, he talks about this body truth and this one flesh truth as being a mystery in verse 32. And not just a mystery, but a great mystery. Well, what is it that's a, that's a mystery? Really, it has to do with the Gentiles here again. Back in chapter 3, uh, it talked about how the Gentiles would be fellow heirs. And, and, and here, this body of Christ. See, Israel previously had a relationship likened to the marriage relationship. Uh, but, but here, the body of Christ, where there's Jew and Gentile, where there's no difference between them, are joined to Christ as, as one flesh. This is something you don't find outside of Paul's epistles. You know, you find, you find Israel having, having some kind of a relationship and, and you see that relationship because of, because of Israel's rebellion, disobedience toward God eventually results in divorce. It results in God giving a bill of divorcement to Israel and, and also to Judah, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of the tribes of Israel. He, he divorces them. He gives a bill of divorcement. But here, the, the body of Christ, um, this is a, a, a mystery relationship, a mystery uh, husband-wife relationship between Christ and the church. And it's very different than, than Israel's relationship because even their marriage relationship back there in the Old Testament was was based on the law. It was based on their keeping of the law. And when they failed to do that, God gives them that bill of divorcement. Uh, you know that under the law, a man could divorce his wife. All the, all the Old Testament says is that if he finds uncleanness in her, he gives her a bill of divorcement. He could, he could divorce his wife for, you know, he didn't have to have, have some, some big reason. A uh, man could divorce his wife. He gave her that bill of divorcement and she was free to, to go and marry another man. And the Lord, finding uncleanness in Israel, gave them a bill of divorcement. They're, they're, and he, he likens their spiritual, their idolatry to spiritual fornication. Um, by the way, go over to Romans. Go back to uh, Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And, and so God gives them that bill of divorcement. You know, when you get into Paul's epistles, though, what God tells to, to the believer today about divorce is basically, you know, you read what, what uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, about, about divorce and, and remarriage. And basically, Paul gives no valid grounds for a believer to get divorced. Uh, he does say if there's an unbeliever that that wants to leave, you know, let them, let them depart. 
Okay, and he gives some instructions about remarriage and, and things there. Um, when you understand that the marriage relationship is a picture in in Paul's epistles, it's a picture between God and the body of Christ, or, or Christ and the body of Christ. In the Old Testament, marriage was a picture between God and Israel. Uh, in the Old Testament, where God allowed divorce uh, under the law, he, he divorces Israel. In Paul's epistles, there's no grounds for a believer to, to seek divorce, and there is no way that God's going to divorce the body of Christ. Okay, there's there's parallels there between those. Um, Romans chapter seven, verse one says, "Know ye not, brethren? For I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, previously in, in Romans 6, Paul had written about being baptized into Christ's death and participating in his death. Here he says that's an important thing, because as unbelievers, we were, we were married to the law. Say, we were joined to, to the law. And you realize that, that uh, unbelievers, when they're judged by God and they're judged at, at the great white throne, and it, and it says the, the book was opened, which is the book of life, and then it says the books were opened and they were judged things in the books according to their works. So the unsaved person, that's how, they're, that's how they're judged before God. The proof that they deserve to spend eternity in the lake of fire is going to be that record of their works, where they fall short of the righteousness of God. Um, now, at that great white throne, there are no believers that appear there because the believer, and, and especially in the dispensation of grace, the believer's sins have already been judged in Christ. They've already been, they've already been uh, uh, judged. They've already been, Christ has been condemned and he's paid the price for them. And you know, that's really the choice that somebody has before them when they hear the gospel. It, it's a choice of, do I, do I, uh, allow Christ's payment that He's already made? Do I allow that to count for me? Or do I choose to have God just, just judge me directly for those sins? That's really the choice that's being made. See, Christ paid the price, and, and He paid that price for all. It's unto all, but it's upon them that believe. But you see, in, in believing the Gospel, we're baptized into Christ's death, and we become dead in verse 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. That that law that was in fact the law itself is described as being dead, 
Um, if you if you read a few verses down, verse five says, for when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. See, we were joined to that law and that law worked in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But through Christ, we're, we're delivered from that. We become dead to that law and we become joined to Christ so that now we can bring forth fruit unto God. Now we can do something we could never do under the law. We can actually bring forth fruit unto God. We can actually have life and partake in that, that life of Christ. Now what that means is for the believer to, to go back to the law is a form of spiritual adultery. Right? We, we, were, we were separated from that law by, by death. Okay? And we were joined to Christ to, to go back to the law as spiritual adultery. And uh, you, know that, you know that under the Old Testament law, if, a, if a, uh, a man and a woman were divorced, the woman could go and get remarried. But if she got remarried to someone else, she could never go back to that first husband. She could never do it. If, you know, if, there, if she didn't get remarried, she could go back and reconcile with him. But if she got married again, she could never go back to him. And again, you take some of these things and apply them. And the, and the uh, implication is, believer in Christ, never go back to that law. That's, a, that's an adultery against Christ. It's a, an unfaithfulness toward Christ. Um, and, and, you know, when you really look at that law as it's described in a passage like this, why would you want to go back to it anyway? Why would you want to leave the love of Christ who, who takes that church and, and sanctifies it by the washing of water by the Word and presents it to Himself as something glorious and, and without spot and go back to that abusive husband of the law that only ever finds the fault? Why would you ever want to do that? But we have this tendency in our flesh to want to go back to that. Um, so you see, you see that relationship there, and Paul describes it as a mystery. Um, you know, as as Gentiles in the Old Testament, Israel Israel had a had a, a kind of a husband wife relationship uh, there with God in the Old Testament. He talks about how he took them as as his wife. They had that relationship, but as Gentiles, you and I could never never have a part in that. We could never experience that. Uh, we weren't a part of that that whole system, and yet now he can take Jew and Gentile alike and put them into this into this body, you know. And and it's important, by the way, not to not to confuse those things. Some people, because of that, because of some of those similarities, you see, they'll say, "Oh, there is no dispensational change." You see, it's just what God's doing today is just a continuation of what He was doing with Israel in the Old Testament. Um, many times, when, many times when passages like this are are taught on people who use the term the bride of Christ, and they'll say the church is the bride of Christ. Um, you know that's a that's a term that's used a lot of places in the Bible. Um, it's used in in the Old Testament several times. Um, certainly used in the Book of Revelation. Go to their book to the Book of Revelation. Let me just draw a comparison here for you or a distinction for you. Um, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 21, 
Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is John uh, here at the end of the book of Revelation after that battle of Armageddon and, and after the second coming of Christ. Uh, then you have the thousand years. And um, at the end of that time, you have the, that great white throne. Right. And uh, so so the end of chapter 20 describes people being cast into the lake of fire in the second death. And then chapter 21, uh, verse one says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. There was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And, you know, oftentimes when people teach on like Ephesians 5 or, or that passage in Romans 7, and then they'll try and kind of lump it all together with these things. Uh, there's several problems with that. That term bride is a specific prophetic term. Okay. It's now, now Paul's talking about something in Ephesians 5 that he says is a mystery. Uh, you know, a mystery is something that wasn't revealed. Prophecy is something that was revealed. Okay, and those two are are in contrast to one another, um, and and so you know for for a long time uh, the vast majority of the church taught that the church was the bride of Christ, but realized they also taught that the church was Israel. Okay, now a lot of the dispensationalists had to early dispensationalists had to kind of wrestle with that question. Well. Is the church the bride of Christ? If the church isn't the bride of Christ, who is the bride of Christ? And oftentimes they say, well, Israel is the bride of Christ. Not the church, it's Israel that's the bride of Christ. Um, you run into some problems with that as well. The, the reality is you look at all the passages, Old Testament and New Testament, that talk about the bride. And it's not Israel, but it's, it's Jerusalem. See, it's more specific than Israel. You see what John sees here? It's this city of New Jerusalem that's coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And what's happening there in that, in that new earth is that the New Jerusalem is coming down and there's a marriage about to take place where Christ is, is united with that, that bride, that city of Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and you find that in the Old Testament as well. You look at the passages that talk about a, a bride, and it is Jerusalem, or it's Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. We sometimes tend to just kind of group all these things together in our minds. Um, you know, we think of Jerusalem, we think of that as interchangeably with Israel. But um, you wouldn't think of Washington, D.C. as being interchangeable with the United States, right? One's more specific, one's more general. And, and you know, if you're going to make all of Israel the bride, there's some problems with that. Because what, what, as far as the, you know, the imagery there, the disciples described as. They weren't described as the bride. They were described as the friends of the bridegroom, Right? John the Baptist is the friend of the bridegroom. He's like the best man at the wedding. Well, isn't he Israel? See, so if, you, if you try and make it all the people of Israel that are the bride in these prophetic passages, you wind up with problems. If you let it be Jerusalem, there's no problem. And that's what John sees coming down here as he sees the city of, of Jerusalem. And in fact, he describes the 
structure of the city, the walls of the city, the foundations, all, all these things. And, and so there's a prophetic bride that's described here. But, but you see, when we're over in Ephesians 5, and Paul is describing that relationship between the body of Christ and the Lord, that's something that's already taken place. It's not some future wedding that we're waiting for. Right? He, he's talking about it, us as being one flesh with Christ right now. And if you try and lump all that in together, then you have to, you have to figure out, well, how, how, are we, how are we the wife of Christ now and yet the bride of Christ at some point at, at least a thousand years in the future from now? And it, and it doesn't work. You have to realize there's some differences. There's some prophetic things and there's some mystery things. And Paul says this is a great mystery. And again, especially to us as, as Gentiles, you know, for, for, for the... For the Jew in the dispensation of grace, maybe this aspect of the mystery isn't a, a, a whole, you know, it may not be that great of a change. Israel previously had a special relationship with God that no other nation had. But especially for us as Gentiles, the fact that now we can be a part of this relationship that God has, that we can be a part of that, that church that is so united to Christ, so intimately united to Christ, that it's called His very body, His flesh, and His bone. That we would be considered members of His body in the same way that a husband and wife are considered one flesh. What a great privilege we have in that. Uh, Paul doesn't just say it's a mystery. There's a lot of things that, that he calls mystery. right? He certainly refers to... to uh, you know, a lot of other things that are unique to the dispensation of grace is mystery. But this, he says, is a great mystery in Ephesians 5. And let's just, let's just turn back there. Verse 32. Well, look at verse, look at verse 30. It says, For we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, he's teaching here about husbands and wives and how they ought to relate to one another. But really, he's teaching about Christ and the church. And that's what's the mystery. The husband-wife relationship isn't a mystery. But that relationship between Christ and the church is a mystery, and it's a great mystery. And, and he ends up there uh, with, you know, going back to practical instruction to husbands and wives, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. What a, what a great love. Um, let's go over to Romans 5. What a great love that... God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ had for the church that they would plan this all out in eternity past. Uh, here in, in Romans 5, um, verse 6, Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. As it describes our state prior to hearing and believing the gospel, you see, there's three, three descriptions that are given there. In verse 6, it says, when we were yet without strength. And that's, that's the state that we come into the world. We, we may have some relative strength to, to do some various things in the world in comparison to those around us. But when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to anything that's in any way worthwhile to God, we come into this world without strength. And no matter how much how much uh, position we might achieve in the world or wealth or or power or any of those things, we're without strength. When we were without strength, it says that Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, it says, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were without strength to do anything worthwhile to God, but we sure had plenty of strength to sin, right? So, so we were without strength, and we were sinners. The fact we were without strength didn't mean we were inactive. We were just active in the wrong things. We were sinners, but even beyond that, you see what it says in verse 10, for if when we were enemies, not only were we just with strength, we couldn't do anything good. Not only were we, you know, uh, sinning, but we were enemies of God. We were actively working against what God desired. And yet, in all of those situations, being without strength, being sinners, being enemies, God loved us and Christ Christ died for us. You see that? Let's just read the passage again. Verse 6, When we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. In verses 7 and 8, it's a, you know, a, a righteous man, scarcely for a righteous man, will one die. I mean, if, if you were walking down the street and you saw someone you knew to be a righteous man and they were about to walk out in front of a speeding bus, you might go and push them out of the way, even knowing that, that it would cost you your life. Right? You might do that, scarcely. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. Maybe they're not a righteous man, but in general, they're a, they're a good person, right? You might, you might be willing to do that. You might be willing to give your life for theirs. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't righteous and we weren't even good. And yet Christ, who was righteous and good, would give his life for us. And verses 9 and 10 say, you know, if he did that, much more than being now justified by his blood, we should be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we should be saved by his life. If he was going, if he was willing to do that to save us when we were without strength and sinners and enemies, now that we've been reconciled and now that we've been justified, how much more is God going to do in our lives to, to save us? through the process of sanctification and eventually glorification. How much more, uh, if, if uh, we've been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
I, I hope you get just a glimpse of how much God loves you and that it's an active love. It, it's, not, it's not just something distant. It's not just something where, where uh, you know, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are out there somewhere and, you know, and maybe you pass through their mind once in a while. But God has a great love for you. Why don't you go to Colossians? Second Corinthians 5 says that the love of Christ constraineth us. You know, what motivates people under the law is, is the threat of judgment, the threat of punishment. But that's not what ought to motivate the believer. The love of Christ constraineth us. That's not our love for him. That's his love for us. In the face of that kind of love, how can we do anything other than serve him? And Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. You notice verse 2 says, set your affection on things above. If, if you were to uh, take a, a, a concordance and do a word study on that word affection, you would find that sometimes the Bible uses the word affection, and sometimes it uses the word affections. And what you find is when it talks about affections, it generally talks about the kinds of things that interest our flesh. And, and, you know, we have these various things that attract us and we set our affections on them and we're pulled this way and that way and that way. But when it talks about the love that we ought to have for Christ, it uses the singular. Set your affection, one singular affection on things above, not on the things on the earth. Say, so seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. You want to you wanna see fellowship and, and unity among saints. If you have a, a group of saints that are setting their affection on Christ and setting their affection on things above, what happens is those saints might, might start out in all kinds of different places, but what happens through time is they come closer and closer together because they're all headed in the same direction and they've got their, their affections set in the, wrong place, or in, the, in the right place, in the same place. You know? and, and sometimes what happens is you know, people take their affection off of Christ and, and instead they're, they're putting their affection on whatever, some good thing. You know, maybe it's some good thing. Um, but they're putting their affection on that instead of on Christ, and it really winds up in them getting, getting off course. But when believers have their affection set on Christ, those, those believers are going to naturally flow together in fellowship and in unity. Okay? And, and uh, you know, certainly when you, take your, when you take your affection off of Christ and you Start to put it on other things, and, and maybe it's things of ministry, even. Maybe it's things of maybe it's serving other saints. But you take the focus off of Christ, and now you're putting the, the focus on those other saints. You're going to wind up in, in not the right place. But you set your affection on Christ, and it's going to cause you to serve other saints, and it's going to cause you to do a, a lot of other things that'll be the natural result of having that affection set in the right place. And you know, we we owe nothing less than to set our affection on, our one singular affection on Christ, 
because he set his affection on us. That's not something we do to get love from him. He first set his affection on us and gave himself for us and, and washed us and cleansed us and sanctified us and set us apart. And uh, certainly a, a great mystery concerning Christ and the church. Let's close with prayer. Lord God, we thank you for these things from your word. We thank you for this great love that you've demonstrated toward us. Pray that that would be something real to us, something that we, we don't just know about theoretically in our mind, but something that we, we live and experience every day. That as we come to your word, it wouldn't just be a, a, a dead book. It wouldn't just be a history book to us or a, or a book of facts or, or something we can use to puff ourselves up. But we would read it as the, the love letter that it is that tells us about the great love that you have for us and, and how you've commended that love to us through your son. And that, that as, we, as we experience that love, that it would cause us to love you in return. That your love would constrain us and motivate us and, and teach us. And we just thank you for these things. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.